am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy here at Bethel University. And in my office joining me today is... Andy Bramson. And Mitchell Crum. And I'm Chris Moore. And you haven't heard our voices for a while because, uh, like good academics, uh, at the end of the fall semester, <laughs> when December hit, um, we, we packed up shop and went on the road and we're doing our own respective research and traveling and visiting families and everything. And here at Bethel University in January, we have our own special J-term. And we all went to the, to the far winds for that. Uh, Professor Mulberry, who's not here today because he is, yes, of course, in a meeting. Uh, well, he was in he was in Europe for World War One. We're not, we're back now, and election shock therapy. Maybe you should clarify. He's in there for a tour of World War One, not for World War. That's a good point. Right. Yeah. He's not actually. <laughs> we're going to finish it now. <laughs> Forget Versailles. We're going down. Yeah. That's it. Ninety nine years later. Um, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So um, we're we're back now. We're election shock therapy is going to be still a regular podcast, probably not a weekly podcast. We're going to insert some other podcasts into this channel feed. You can still contact us at electionshocktherapy at gmail dot com, and we're going to be keeping track of American political happenings and their impact on world political happenings on this podcast. Mm-hmm. But first, gentlemen, before we dive into everything that's happened since December, mm-hmm. and boy, has there been a lot. What did you get for Christmas? Hmm. Ah, Christmas feels like so long ago. <laughs> um, I got Harry Potter and um, The Cursed Child for okay. Christmas. Um, I haven't gotten to read it yet because I've been busy doing the January term readings because mm-hmm. I um, had to teach January term. I'm like, you know. What did some you teach in January? Room. I taught Humanities 2, which is a lot of fun, uh, Renaissance Reformation, and we do a Shakespeare play. So that was great fun. And it's the sequel. Humanities 2. What's that? Humanities 2. Humanities 2, the sequel. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a good sequel. Good. Um, and now I'm in Humanities 3, which is like the sequel to the this sequel. It's the end of the trilogy, so, right? Uh, no, because there's a Humanities 4. Oh, so they always like, brought it back. Any, anymore, yeah. you can't do a trilogy. You have to split up the last one. Yeah. Into, that's into true. Two parts. It's a two-parter. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so maybe we should think about Humanities 3 Part 1 and Humanities 3 Part 2. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> anyway. Let's, but, move, um, let's make, make everything yeah. into a movie. Like that's that. true. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Who's the big villain in Humanities? Ooh. Villain. I mean, clearly you're the protagonist right? um, as you lead your intrepid students through. Like, wait, oh, all so the actually a figure here, or one of the people we read? I mean, yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, I think in the in the reading, um, let's go with Nietzsche. Nietzsche's the Nietzsche. villain. I, yeah. He sort of stalks you uh, through humanity. Yeah. He tries to tear <laughs> apart everything we've done. So Nietzsche. Oh dear, uh, Mitch! You were my, my, stu- my uh, our mutual students informed me that you were having them read Nietzsche in the first week of class. This How dare you? Yeah. That's right. Yep, that's where we start for modern political thought. Yep. So modern political thought starts with Nietzsche. <laughs> yep. Sure. Well, it, it, it goes it, downhill from there. Well, <laughs> hopefully not. All as for actually, actually, I mean the way the way I sort of frame modern political thought is basically you have um, you start with the death of God and <laughs> basically this experience of meaninglessness and yep. hopelessness and. You know, just the void, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, basically from there, you know, the, the challenges and the way I sort of view contemporary political thought is how do you do political theory given that? Right. How do you, given that right. understanding, where do you go from here and how do you um, come up with ideas of justice or rights or democracy or anything like that um, given given the void? And so, yes, yeah, so that's where we're starting. Yep. Mm. That's... Um this is why I don't like modern political thought. <laughs> Give me the ancients. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but see, that's that's the easy way out, right? Because then you still believe that there's a teleology and all I that good stuff. Yeah, I, I like it better. <laughs> uh, and what did you teach over in interim? Uh, I taught uh, revolutions, which is normally your class. So, yeah. Um, I taught it, I think, probably as a bit more of a history and political theory type class. Totally although we fine. had some, We had some nice uh, skock pole and some other, um, you know more 
<clears throat> structuralist, I guess, takes on revolution. And, so you, so uh, you didn't discuss Silver, Sarah Silverman calling for a political coup in the United States? No, we, did, we didn't go there. No, oh. Although some students were, were kind of wondering if we're headed for revolutionary times. But mm. Um, mm. but no, yeah, we, we looked at <clears throat> basically the history of revolution. So we spent a lot of time with the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And one of the, one of the interesting things actually that came out in doing this is most of these students, you know, I think of sort of the French Revolution as basically, I mean, obviously for my modern political thought class, we're starting with Nietzsche, but I basically mm-hmm. think of the French Revolution as sort of the turning point for modernity. I mean, that's mm-hmm. for political modernity. Mm-hmm. That is sort of a massive break with the past yeah. at that point. And really, in talking to these students, most of them really had no clue what the French Revolution was or what mm. happened or why it was mattered or anything. Yep. And it was just, it was interesting to me because most of these students weren't political scientists. So right. I would like to think that maybe political science majors um, would know a little bit more about that. But most of them, you know, just based on their high school education and whatever history classes yep. they've already taken, I mean, just really had no exposure. I mean, they knew that there was such a thing as a French Revolution, <laughs> mm-hmm. but they didn't know, you know, they didn't know who Robespierre was. They didn't know about the tennis court oath, you know, or anything. Right. I mean, they had no, right. you know, no real knowledge of what it was and what it meant. So that was interesting to me, just as somebody, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, now that we're, you know, there's always a degree of separation. I think, you know, obviously after sure. you get the PhD, but it's just sort of interesting just to see what right. most, what I would say probably most people don't know. Right. Because mm-hmm. so. if your college students don't know what chances are, the general populace doesn't know either. Right. right. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't decide to become a college professor until I was in college. But as I look back on my life, I see certain moments like, oh, yeah, I see, you see what you were headed towards. <laughs> and one of those moments was, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I remember if they, if they had this in your state, but Mitch and I grew, both grew up in Ohio. Did you do History Day? In, in in your school, um, see, well, I was homeschooled after my th- after oh, third grade, okay. so we didn't we didn't do yeah we, did, we I didn't participate in some of these rituals. Okay. So. so history day was set up as an alternate as like a humanities version of science fair. Uh, okay, so everyone prepared sort of a, a trifold project of some kind about yeah. some historical thing, but you didn't have to trifold project, and because I am, well, this will tell you something about me. I decided to write a one man play as a seventh grader <laughs> about right. the French Revolution. <laughs> Um, I wow. played myself or yeah. a version of myself who went up into my grandfather's attic and found his great grandfather's letters written mm-hmm. t- written to the United States from France oh, wow. during wow. the during the revolutionary times or during wow. during the colonies Man. during the revolutionary times. Wow. Very creative. Well, uh, I, I I should try to find that, go back and find yeah. what that was written on. But yeah. yeah, I I went to I went to state. I got to go to Case Western University wow. in Cleveland wow. and perform this for some history professors and. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Wow. It's time to bring that back. Yeah. You should no. definitely yeah, perform yeah. that. I yeah. can't even imagine. Yeah. I feel like I, I want to contact the, the, the theater department <laughs> and tell them, we <laughs> have a budding playwright here. That my my one-act play called Letters from Paris. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, um, we'll uh, I, I will go on the record and say I don't think we're close to a revolution in the United States. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I do want to talk about some of the things that have been happening. You know, we're all you know sort of back from our Christmas and our interim breaks. We're all... Um, Andy is sporting his, uh, some some sweet new shoes, which he picked up, and some, some yeah. we got some we, got, we are our Christmas duds on now, so uh, we're we're refreshed, we're ready to go. Um, we we're not even quite sure how to dive into um, <laughs> everything that's happened since December. We, we've uh, wow. In a nutshell, uh, we've said goodbye to the Obama presidency. We've inaugurated the Trump presidency. Uh, uh, Trump has been, uh, generally speaking, uh, has finished off his cabinet, though he does lag behind significantly in a number of the mm-hmm. those cabinets' uh, underlings and officials. Um, and and some of the kind, some of the nominations have taken some time too. In fact, as yeah. we talk today, there's supposed to be a vote today on Betsy DeVos's confirmation. I want to get to that. To you yeah. guys, to that in a little bit here. There's still there's still a number of people who are unconfirmed. I think that's also. correct. So, yeah. Yes, that's which correct. is which is slow compared to sort of past presidencies. So, so we're sort of in the winter of our discontent here, or the winter of our discotent or something. I don't know. Um, there's a <laughs> there's a glittery ball in Chris Moore as Richard the <laughs> Third. In, in our in our discotent, yes, <laughs> it's, a, it's it's set in the 1970s. And, um, there's roller skates. Okay, so we're not, let's talk about the, the, the Trump White House taking shape. And the way I want to do this is we started out this podcast last fall with an intent to not just be pundits, but to bring sort of a political scientist perspective to things that are happening in politics. And as you've reflected in the last couple of months, in December, through December and January into February now, uh, is there a political science literature, a political science scholarship that is resonating with you as you observe what's been happening in the news? Are there people who are being proved right or proved wrong? Uh, one of the things that uh, <clears throat> has been interesting to me as I've been as I've been looking at it is just thinking about um, basically uh, some of the some of the some of the scholarship that came out uh, 
was towards the beginning of last year, I think, called the, uh, basically The Politics of Resentment is one of the books mm-hmm. I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. um, which basically is a study of Wisconsin politics and looking at, um, and I'm blanking on her first name. I think her last name is Guthrie, though. Um, I'm going to need to look it up. Anyway, uh, but anyway, the, the book is Politics of Resentment. And at, at any rate, she goes through Wisconsin and uh, looks and, and basically starts asking people, what, what, do you th- what do you think about the way money is allocated, how state politics run? And what she finds basically is that most people see, most rural people see cities as getting a lot more money, a lot more advantages, and that there's basically been a buildup of um, resentment by rural mm. people against people in urban areas. And one of the things mm-hmm. that that emphasizes is, you know, she and she obviously wrote this well before the election, but the mm-hmm. the massive cleavage appearing between rural and urban people that we saw in this election, and so mm-hmm. I think we're continuing to see that. I think you know, in, at least in the rhetoric of mm-hmm. um, Trump, we're continuing to see those those sort of cleavages um, emphasized. And so I think that, um, yeah, do you have? Yep, it's the politics of resentment, yeah. rural consciousness in Wisconsin, and the rise of Scott Walker by Kathy Kramer. Kathy Kramer, that's right, that's right, Kathy Kramer. All right, so at any rate, um, so 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 that's one piece that I think that is really helpful uh, in this time right now. I think another one, um, and this is sort of you know just sort of citing the the, the big guns, but um, obviously uh, Bartels and Aiken had a recent mm-hmm. um, publication, their their recent book on uh, on democracy for realists. Um, in, in many ways. It was sort of borne out in this election that, that a lot of people don't really know what's going on, um, that most people follow sort of their social cues uh, over any kind of real information. And hmm. once wait, wait, wait. Can I pause you on that? Yeah, what, do sure. you mean when, what do you mean by someone following a social cue over real information? So most people, uh, according to them, basically will follow um, the, the impulses of the social groups of which they're a part. So okay. basically they're going to follow, you know, if they think that they are – um, whatever you know, a certain religion, a certain mm-hmm. um, type of person, they will go with what they think that type of person should do or should think. And so, mm-hmm. there's very much a strong set of identities, you know, sort of a um, yeah, basically mm-hmm. a lot of identity that, that that people put into it, and that will mm-hmm. guide what they're thinking. It's not really, you know, basically what they're trying to deflate is this sort of idea that we do have. You know, they're going after the idea of like a rational public, mm-hmm. um, and that you know, basically public opinion has any kind of real substance. They're saying, you know, it doesn't have. Any, anything close to the real substance we would need to have um, what we would think of as a serious uh, democracy in that sense where, where people are rationally choosing based on, uh, you know, solid information and their own interests even and things like that. And so right. people are very much just following these social cues. And so what their argument is, is as political scientists, we need to actually start thinking about how do we think about political science and how do we think about democracy itself given these realities. And of course, as, as they say, these aren't things that you know, political scientists have known this for some time, that most people aren't very informed, most people sure. don't have a lot of information. Right. But a lot of people have sort of tried to prop up American democracy by saying, oh, you know, there's heuristics. And so people are uninformed, sure. but it's okay because they have other sources but of information. But they get right on balance. Right. Yeah. And so, and so mm-hmm. they kind of get in there. And mm-hmm. basically this argument is saying all of these sorts of, like, nice stories we tell ourselves are just uh, nice stories and they really don't reflect reality. Um, and Let me ask you a follow-up on that yeah. because – I'm curious to see, uh, is there any sense of how strong these kind of social cues are? Like, for example, if I go to a church and everybody at that church watches Fox News, over time I'm probably inclined to watch Fox News myself. That makes sense to me. That's a social mm-hmm. cue that yeah. is reasonably strong. But, like, if I went to a church where everybody believed that pro wrestling was real, I mean, like, I, <laughs> I mean, is that, like, am I, am I, is, is reality warped by who I'm around? Like, am I fundamentally misinformed in those kinds of ways? See, I'm not even uh, – well, I don't even uh, – it's, it's, it may even be at a deeper level than that because it's not so much that you're like, oh, I'm going to watch Fox News. I mean it's not even so much almost at a level at an information level. Mm. It's basically more of a level of like I identify as you know a farmer or as a rural person or sure. whatever, and rural people vote uh, in this way or rural people band mm-hmm. together in this, this way. This is what we do. This is what we do. And so it's not even like I watch Fox News, therefore I have a certain view of the world and a certain set of facts. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even have those set of facts. I so mean, it's ontology, not epistemology. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it is it is interesting to see this, like, this sort of continuing divide. I mean, the, um, so 50 years ago, there was a famous work in um, party systems literature by um, Martin Lipset and um, Stein Rokan, they, they talked about sort of social cleavages as being the divide. And it does seem to me, to Mitch's point, that increasingly the big one here is the urban-rural. I mean, like, it just does It does feel like there's a, a big, you know, a big contrast between the, the way that people in the cities and people in the countryside think about America, what it should look like, um, what the values should be, and that Trump has been very successful in tapping into that. And so yeah. um, that was one of the four big, you know, potential divides that Lipset and Rokan highlighted for us. And I think that is what we're... 
what we're seeing right now. The other thing it's, that interests me that I'm just sort of keeping an eye on here um, in terms of sort of political science literature and what's happening is sort of the way that the parties are shaking out. And so it, it does feel to me like we're going to – I mean, maybe a winner of discontent, I don't know, but like, a, you know, some kind of feel, a sense of uncertainty of what do these parties stand for exactly? I mean, um, so, I mean, with Republicans, I mean, they've been traditionally very, you know, last since Reagan, really, uh, the moral majority, very associated with the Christian right. And it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like that's dominant with Trump anymore. I mean, he is keeping, you know, some of his promises to the most notably the Supreme Court, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Sure. But, but I think, you know, he is clearly not a person who... Um, speaks naturally to that community, right? And so one of the interesting moments that Mitch and I were talking about a few days ago um, was, you know, at the, the prayer breakfast, right? I mean, where, you know, like when you compare, one of my friends put up a meme on Facebook, I mean, you compare like what Obama's remarks were and Trump's remarks were in 2016 and 2017, it's just, it's not even really comparable, right? I mean, Obama gives this very traditional prayer breakfast message that could have come from a conservative, quite frankly, in he some sounds, ways, right? He sounds to me, um, devout. Yeah, he sounds devout. He, you know, I'm, I want to like share a passage I've been reflecting on and here's the passage and here's what I reflect on. And, I mean, it's, you know, the classic formula, right? I mean, sure. You can sort of plug in your passage, plug in your reflection, right? And Trump gets up there and, you know, talks about himself. And then um, three and a half minutes in has a prayer request, which is that we should pray for Arnold Schwarzenegger's ratings because he's not doing as well in The Apprentice as I am. Which is just and then it's like, and by the way, I'm going to reappoint the chaplain and bleep it. And I don't care how that works. I'm going to do it. And it's like, you just swore at the prayer breakfast, right? I mean, like, um, so it's a very weird. I mean, like, what does that mean for the future of the Republicans and the, the Christian right? On the other hand, the Democratic Party doesn't seem in a position to take advantage of this. They seem kind of like they're flailing. They're not exactly sure what their identity should look like. Um, They are very much in a period of uncertainty, and they're struggling. I mean, they're they're eviscerated at the local level. They're eviscerated at the national level. I mean, they're really – you know, they just don't have an obvious base of power. And the places where they do have power, like governorships, they have all these really old um, governors in many instances, including our own Mark Dayton, who just turned 70 and is battling prostate cancer and, you know, collapsed during the state of the state. Right? And he's one of the, yeah, he collapsed during the state of the state a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, so, I mean, it's just, you know, this is a really, it's it's an interesting time. Um, and I don't know where this is heading, but it's, um, those are the kind of some of the things I'm watching. There have been a lot of, um, Come uh, uh, postmortems on the mm-hmm. Democratic side. Um, <laughs> of one of them is this, as I, I completely agree with the two of you, uh, this rural-urban divide kind of question. Uh, since the election, books that were already prominent and popular in the fall have the sales of which have skyrocketed, presumably by Democratic operatives who are trying to figure out what the <laughs> heck went wrong. The most striking um, uh, graphic that I saw following the election was a map of the United States, which was scaled in terms of like topographical so if you picture mm-hmm. sort of like a very a very bumpy map uh for by population so okay. cities jumped up yeah. like huge columns right and then the cities and and the and the countryside was colored based upon the intensity with which they voted for republicans the intensity with which they voted for democrats mm-hmm. and what it ended up with was deep red countrysides and bright blue cities mm-hmm. right now there are some exceptions in the suburbs were kind of a mottled purple and were medium right. height right but right. the right. centers of cities for the most part um, were bright blue, uh, mm-hmm. overwhelmingly Democratic voters. Right. And the countryside right. is overwhelmingly uh, Republican voters. And this fits some kinds of theses that we've seen in books that have come out recently, yeah. like the one uh, Mitch mentioned. But also, um, we've already pro- we've already plugged uh, Hillbilly Elegy um, right. by one... Uh, um, by our fellow Ohio State grad, um, and not uh, my fellow uh, J- 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 <laughs> What's that? I not my fellow. J.D. Vance and uh, a book called White Trash, and these books are you know sort of on, on bestseller list now because people are trying to figure out what's this, mm-hmm. uh, what's driving rural voters, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and actually, also, if, oh, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. Well, I'll come back to this, but I actually have something to say about the uh, basically Democrats trying trying to look at this. I actually just recently went to mm-hmm. um, an, an event with a local Democratic Party here in uh, quasi rural uh, Minnesota. So um, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Go so up. let me just 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 to kind of build on that point here, just briefly. Uh, um, basically, the um, the chairwoman of the party there was basically saying, you know, that she felt like as someone who's trying to reach rural Minnesota voters, and of course, you know, we're here in Minnesota. This is not usually known as sort of uh, a red state or red country, yeah. <laughs> um, but basically saying that rural voters feel very disconnected from the party and that yeah. they basically feel like the party emphasizes um, every group except for rural rural voters. I mean, that there are lots, there's lots of diversity in the party and that mm-hmm. not that that's a bad thing, but that there seems to be no place or emphasis on the needs and problems of, the, of, a, of a white rural voter. Yeah. yeah. And, and insofar as they can win, Democrats can win out in the countryside because they, they have to 
sort of pitch it differently than the National Party, right? So, for example, I mean, people like Rick Nolan in the Iron Range or Colin Peterson out west in Minnesota still win in rural Minnesota as Democrats, but they win by running very differently than the National yeah. Party, and they run right. significantly ahead of, um, you know, the presidential candidates, including most recently, you know, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, while Trump won the Iron Range, um, Nolan still held on to his seat um, up there. So, you know, it's... Yeah, it's a, it's a big challenge for them when they think about the National Party because it's hard to run against the National Party for too long. Eventually, voters say, start saying, those guys don't stand for what I believe. Right. right? So they've got to figure yeah. that out. Okay, so one, so one theory on this is the one we've, we've already mentioned, sort of this, um, that I was showing up at a lot of postmortems about the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. which is, and I, I'm quoting a title here of one of them, the Democratic Party has a religion problem. Mm-hmm. And over time, the Democratic Party has been the party has become the party of secularism, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. Republican Party has become the party of, of faithful people. Now, on the mm-hmm. surface of that, I, ha- I, I, I I'm I'm uncomfortable making that claim because mm-hmm. if we look at traditional Democratic right. Party voters, they include African American churches, um, liberal Protestant churches, uh, white Protestant churches. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not convinced that the Democratic Party has utterly abandoned uh, people of faith, but yet at the uh, amongst its Elite leaders, it seems like there's a, the Republican Party has been far more effective at capturing faithful mm-hmm. voters, and particularly white evangelical voters and white Catholic voters over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and I think that, you know, that this has been, you know, it was interesting. Obama did try to speak to religious voters and did a better mm-hmm. job. And I think that's one of the reasons you can look at why he was more successful um, than Hillary Clinton, right? In terms of his, um, you know, his elections, I mean, um, is that he did he did make more much more of an attempt. Um, Hillary Clinton occasionally would use this kind of language, and weirdly, I mean, it was better positioned to use this language than Donald Trump, but yep. didn't really take advantage of that. And in fact, at several key moments, she really went hard left, and so she just took very positions that people of you know who are deeply committed to their faith were going to be you know somewhat too deeply uncomfortable with. Um, and so instead of trying to speak to those people in language that reassured them and taking more of a a centrist position, um, she decided to go hard left in ways that felt very secular. And so, yeah. um, you know, I can understand even, you know, why a lot of my, my um, sort of Christian friends felt like, you know, this was such an important candidate that they had to vote for Donald Trump, even though um, they also said, you know, there's a lot of things that make me uncomfortable about him, right? And so, right. and I had this conversation with a number of friends and that, you know, a lot of times their their argument for Trump really was an argument against sort of what they felt like was the extreme secularism of Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. If I think back to the last dozen or so presidential elections without thinking too hard about it it's rare uh it's almost always the case that the person who is more facile in talking about their faith is the person who won mm-hmm. um obama was certainly more comfortable than mccain in talking about his faith mm-hmm. for yeah. romney faith was an faith was a was a complex issue yeah um mm-hmm. because he was mormon he had to really be right. careful how much he said right. yeah. i mean the one yeah. i would point to i think where, where, that, where this doesn't hold true to, to, you know, to poke a hole in my own theory here mm-hmm. is that ronald reagan was certainly more reticent to talk about his own faith than, than jimmy carter was right so right. and that, that was yeah. a situation where that doesn't hold true mm-hmm. but it's it, it does seem like being genuine and talking about your faith mm-hmm. is almost always a political advantage in the united in yeah. American election. but reagan was good even though he wasn't necessarily very comfortable to talking about his personal faith and certainly not to the degree that Carter was, he was good with religious rhetoric, right? Yeah. I mean, like he could, yeah. he, he infused it with a lot of that. So I think that probably covered those bases. Sure. Even though he, yeah, his, his discussion of personal faith was much less. Right. Yeah. So yeah. But yeah, that's, that's a good point. Well, what I, I want to bring up one, and then if you have other sort of political science applications uh, to our mm-hmm. modern political climate, and I, I hope you, uh, those of you who are listening, uh, the five of you who have still subscribed to this channel, <laughs> um, no, in all seriousness, thank you for listening if you've come this far with us. Uh, I hope you are not put off by what I'm about to cite. Um, let me, and let me walk it back as soon as I cite <laughs> it. But I've been resonating with some of the things that Bruce Bennett and Mesquita has uh, uh, put out in uh, his book, The Dictator's Handbook. Mm. Now, I'm not here to suggest that Donald Trump is a dictator. Uh, Rather, what Buena de Mesquita in his very controversially titled book is, is doing is suggesting that political leaders, when they come to power, have an interest in staying in power. Mm-hmm. And to do that, they want to be as free as possible, um, or to put it a different way, they want to be constrained by as few things as possible. Mm-hmm. And so they'll, they'll go out of their way to try to, cl- to craft a coalition of supporters that is as small as possible and as replaceable as possible to give mm-hmm. them maximum mm-hmm. leverage. Mm-hmm. And as I think about the Trump administration, this is this is sounding pretty good to me. Mm-hmm. That Donald Trump is not trying to please everybody. Mm-mm. He is trying to cultivate 
a relatively mm-hmm. narrow band mm-hmm. of supporters who he thinks will be more than sufficient to keep him in power. He might be wrong, mm-hmm. but, that, but that's his play. Right. He's not right. even trying to appeal to all Republicans. No. So as I think about like who's Trump's base, um, he threw a he, he threw a big meaty bone to evangelical voters with with Neil Gorsuch, his, Demi- mm-hmm. his uh, Supreme Court nominee. But in general, most of his moves have been towards um, the more business side of the Republican mm-hmm. Party. Yeah. Yeah. Um, reducing regulations, mm-hmm. opening up pathways to trade. And yeah. yet this sits at odds somewhat with some of his more protectionist policies. <laughs> yeah. So who's Trump's base? Is he being a good dictator? Um. I mean, I think, yeah, I do think his base is, um, there are two, there are two sort of natural bases. One is the, the business community where he is, he does have some sort of street cred and he certainly named a lot of businessmen to his, um, you know, to his cabinet. Yeah. So he should be pretty reassuring to those people. Um, he's already, you know, made moves to try to walk back regulations, right? Um, which makes the business people feel happy because it makes it nice get rid of two regulations for every one you create. Right, exactly. Although right. I have and no idea how that gets enforced. Oh yeah, at sounds, what level? It sounds uh, really yeah. awkward. And and trying to walk back Dodd Frank with an executive order is you know interesting to put it mildly, just because yep. one is congressional legislation, the other is a presidential dictate. But anyway, um, so that aside, I mean, he, I think he's he's got a good base there. And then the other obvious is rural whites, where he. What he needs to do there is keep the rhetoric good, right? I mean, yeah. they keep making them feel like yeah. he understands. Now, the question is how far does that go with if they don't start experiencing material um, improvement, right? I mean, if, right. If, they're, if they look at their situation three years from now and they're asked the question, you know, are you better off than you were um, at the beginning of Donald Trump's presidency? And the answer isn't yes, right? Then do they still stick with him? And that's right. why I don't know, like, how much, like, how far does rhetoric Although, go? Although, to Mitch's, to Mitch's earlier point, though, uh, are we so inured with our own uh, predispositions mm-hmm. and our own social right. connections, even if they're not doing better, well, they think they're doing better. Well, they might. And that, that's the thing. And they might also look and say, well, we're not doing greatly better, but at least he understands and look at the, non, the you know, whoever the Democrats have put up in 2020 and they might still stick with him. Right. And so that does seem to be right. those two do seem to be the groups that Trump's playing to. And then he's trying to hold on to the evangelicals by doing certain key things. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, and again, the Supreme Court will go a long ways. Right. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I think a lot of my evangelical friends who voted for him voted for that reason and mm-hmm. will put up with a lot of this other stuff is my guess. Um, as long as he keeps sending up court nominees like that, right? And so right. as long as he, he keeps them happy on the courts, um, they'll probably put up with, you know, him swearing at the prayer breakfast, right? And <laughs> other things. Right, so. I'm just, I, I, think I, I think I heard a band one time called Swearing at the Prayer Breakfast. Um, <laughs> Ohio State grads. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a good local music scene. It's a garage band. All right. Um, do... Let, let's switch briefly to Supreme Court pick here because I, there's other things I want to talk about the Trump administration, yeah. but this is this is big news. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I I mean Gorsuch gets nominated gets gets I and mean, there's there's no way he he doesn't get it uh, picked right. Yes, I think there's no way he doesn't get confirmed. Yeah, he's yeah. yeah. Um, because I, I think if if the Democrats decide to filibuster and refuse, I'm pretty sure McConnell will just lower the boom and do the nuclear options that you're being. Can you explain what you mean by that? Um, so the, basically, the way the Senate functions right now. Um, is you know they you have to have sixty votes, not, to, to not end a majority, debate. to yeah. end debate and to get nominees through for the Supreme Court. Now it used to be that that was for all major presidential nominations for lower courts and for cabinet nominees. Um, Harry Reid, who is the Democratic leader in 2013, changed those rules because he felt like the Republicans were holding up too many nominations. Um, and which, so, which he, in his defense, they were. Which they were, but they, that like, might have right, been short-term right. gains for long-term consequences. Correct. Right. And the, and the Republicans, to be fair to Reid, had threatened to do this back in the Bush years, and they, yep. they came up with a compromise. Um, uh, you know, advocated by McCain and Robert Byrd, who's um, from West Virginia and others, right? Um, who said, you know, let's let's get some of these through and let's avoid sort of going to that extreme solution. A few years later, Reed goes to that extreme solution, but he kept the filibuster rule, the sixty-vote rule, in place for Supreme Court nominees. Right. But that's just a Senate rule, and the Senate Majority Leader really does have the discretion to just change it. Um, you know, I think there's downsides to changing it because once you do, I mean, then the, the new rule is going to be fifty-one votes for any nominee, and basically right. that means. If the president's party has 51 votes, he should be able to get his nominees through. Um, so that's, you know, there's downsides to that. It really reduces the ability of the minority to resist. But I think that, you know, if if the Democrats resist Gorsuch, my guess is Re- McConnell will pull that just because yeah. 
Um, there is no good reason to resist Gorsuch other than you don't like his politics. I mean, he's right. eminently qualified. Yep. He was, a, you know, approved by a huge, um, you know, majority of Democrats and Republicans, in fact, a unanimous majority um, when he was appointed to the appeals court by Bush. Um, so there's just, you know, there's no good reason to reject him. Now, having said that, I mean, all the things I just said also apply, by the way, to Merrick Garland, right, um, who is yeah. also right. approved unanimously by Republicans and Democrats. Um, also is eminently qualified, right? Um, so, you know, th- this is why a lot of Democrats are feeling pretty bitter about this, right? Because they're saying all these arguments you're saying about Neil Gorsuch also applied to Obama's nominee for the same seat, who you refused um, not only a vote, but even a hearing, right? So this so that's a, you can understand why they're upset. This is a technical question, and it's it's trivial too, but with Garland being nominated but hearings never being held, do they actually have to have some formal way of dismissing Garland's nomination before no. they can deal with Gorsuch's, or can they just ignore that and pretend it never happened? Well, yeah. once the president's—I mean, the president appointed him's gone, so— Yeah, but that I doesn't think, change the appointment, though, right? I think it does. I think they all kind of— uh, The Senate can ignore it yeah. forever. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't—yeah, I don't think they can— Wouldn't that be wild if they—I mean, like, if it, if it sort of hangs in limbo forever, imagine—I mean, this is sort of speculating out, but imagine yeah. if you have a Democratic president five years from now— and there's a Supreme Court vacancy. Could they just like say, "Well, we've already nominated Garland; he's already here." Like, there's a possibility of bringing that back up. I don't. Uh, I would have to go and look at the. I'm not sure on the technical details of that. Um, I only. I mean, it, it's irrelevant because they could be nominated know, again. Right. The point is, it would just become the longest uh, nomination right. to confirmation <laughs> right, right. process ever. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think you're right, Andy. I agree. I, I, I don't think there's any, any trouble with Gorsuch getting nominated. I actually think, maybe I'm being too optimistic here, I don't think they'll need to use the nuclear option. I'm, I'm really hopeful they don't need to. I mean, I think that this is, for Democrats strategically, I think this is the wrong fight. And the only reason, I mean, the only reason to fight Gorsuch tooth and nail is if, if you, you want, want the Republicans to, to use the nuclear option yep. and thereby clear the decks for you and you can blame them. They're the ones yeah. who changed the rules. They're the ones who did this. That, would, to me, is the only reason. I mean, this is a, otherwise this is a dumb fight because he is really well qualified and you just look bitter. Because, and, and, you know, again, I understand why you're bitter because, you know, the, the Republicans, you know, by all previous rules of engagement should have given Garland a hearing and a vote, yep. um, even if they were going to vote him down, right? They, could, they yep. should have at least done that. Um, but, you know, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's just, I think it, this is a, the wrong fight. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people Obama, or Obama, um, Trump has nominated um, that are much more worth fighting than Gorsuch um, because there's a number of his other nominees who we could, you know, debate their qualifications a lot more. Um, I'm assuming yeah. we're probably going to talk about some of those people. But. And we talked before the break last December about, you know, the violation of norms and the way mm-hmm. that this presidential campaign and now this presidency has broken some long-standing traditions that have sort of been observed by Republican right. and Democratic presidents alike. One of those not, one of those things that Trump himself didn't break, but I think Senate Republicans broke, was not giving Garland a hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. not I, I haven't looked to see when a the you know the closest a, a a Supreme Court justice was nominated to an election, but but it was, it was nearly nine months between the time he was nominated and the election. I think it was more like ten. Yeah, yeah. which oh it was sorry until the election. Yeah, the election. Correct. Sorry. To the, yeah, to the election. Yeah, the election was more like eight, maybe yeah eight or nine. Yeah, and that suggests and that suggests to me plenty. I mean, it seems to me that the problem with this is now that you've said well because that's so close to an election we can't give. Obama's an Obama nominee a hearing you're now opening up that door you're breaking that norm for all future subsequent presidents right I mean and, and, and it becomes a I hate this term but it becomes a slippery slope right so the next time we're a year away yeah. from the election we say well we can't consider that nominee right the next time we're two years away we can't say well I can't consider that nominee and all of a sudden right. I, we, we really could stagnate in terms of Supreme Court and I think this makes it more likely we get we get the mm-hmm. nuclear option yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, like realistically, much as I, I hate to say it, I mean, I think we will get the nuclear option at some point. I don't know if it's going to happen in 2017 with Neil Gorsuch, but, you know, they've, they've gone down this path enough that it, at some point that's probably going to happen. Um, yeah. I hate that, but it's probably the case. Although it depends on your views of the filibuster. My students will be debating this, and mm-hmm. you always have some students yeah. who, who just see this as fundamentally anti-democratic right. and right. Um, are completely opposed to it. And there's, there's a case to be made for that. Oh, yeah, there is. It, no, it, it is arguably more democratic to not do that. Um, but um, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily favor, in favor of everything that's more democratic. So <laughs> I think sometimes, you know, checks on democracy. You, you like some good. pluralism in your democracy? I like some pluralism in my <laughs> democracy. <laughs> some minority um, checks. So. <laughs> I am from the state that produced John Calhoun. So he's all about <laughs> the you know, minority checks on government. 
Well, speaking of checks on government, um, if we're going to have anybody in the Trump administration be challenged by the Democrats, it looks like it's going to be Betsy DeVos. Yeah, and that vote's today, right? That vote is today. So I don't think we know the vote yet, unless either of you are checking your phones. So um, I don't have holding you to this, holding you to your prediction, does Betsy DeVos get confirmed by the Senate? I think so. I, I haven't heard of – there are 50 votes against her. But I, I just, I'm going to be surprised if somebody decides to stick one without saying they're sticking one to the president. Um, and, and, to, and to be clear, 50, 50 tie is a win for DeVos because that means right, Vice President Mike Pence will cast a deciding vote. Yeah. yeah. But I'm, I'm kind of, I'm rooting for somebody to actually return her just because I think it would be, a, I think it would be useful. I mean, partly because I'm concerned about her as a nominee. I don't think, I mean, she's one of the people who I would look at and say she doesn't seem particularly well qualified. She hasn't convinced me that she really understands the issues very well that she'll be dealing with. Um, her, and, her nomination hearing was kind of a disaster. Yeah, to put it mildly, right? I mean, um, and there was a nice SNL spoof on that this weekend, too, by the way. So um, <laughs> anyway, but um, there is, you know, so I, I think there, those are concerns. But then I also just think, um, just given this, this president has been very you know, hot and heavy with the sort of executive orders and trying to do a lot of stuff out of the um, out of the the White House and trying to just tell Congress what they should do and how they should do things. I mean, like mm-hmm. telling McConnell, like, if they don't you know, sign off on this, use the nuclear option and trying to boss around the Senate. So I just think that the whole principle of the Senate telling him no to something early on, it would be good. Um, that would be useful. And on top of that, Betsy DeVos is a nominee who, you know, let's be honest, Trump can do better for education secretary. So I would, I'm kind of hoping a 51st vote emerges, but I don't see it. Who do you think is gonna, if there is a 51st vote, do you guys have a sense of who it might be? I'll go McCain. Yeah, I think McCain's a good guess. Um, maybe maybe Rubio if he wanted yeah. to. If, he, if this if this was a moment when he really wanted to make his, his you know make his name as the alternative to Trump in 2020, um, this could be a moment where he. I heard last comes Saturday, Friday or Saturday that Tillis from North Carolina was wavering. Oh really? Okay. But Interesting. Yeah, well, he would make sense because he's from a swing state, and yeah. so that could be good. So yeah. There was some talk that maybe people could could convince Portman, but he came out and specifically said yeah. that no, he was absolutely not persuadable on this he was going yep. to follow the president so yeah mm-hmm. yeah he has much less motivation than the other three yeah. people we just mentioned we have uh, I, I i think she gets confirmed but i think it's 50 50 yeah. i think well, it, yeah there's not i mean she doesn't have any more than 50 votes yeah good point because yeah. the democrats are clearly going to vote against her in mass and lisa murkowski and susan collins both came out against her yep. on the republican side so now if um if she doesn't get confirmed if one of the people you just mentioned rises up and and we he get a strikes her down. Strike, well, I mean, and, and this would be fairly unprecedented. We, uh, mm-hmm. Presidential mm-hmm. cabinet nominees rarely are vote, are disconfirmed by the Senate. Right. Usually, they withdraw before exactly if there's that right. kind of situation, like Tom right. Daschle in '09, for right. example. So, if that's the case, and she doesn't get confirmed, I mean, uh, Jerry Falwell is the next nominee, right? Jerry Falwell Jr. is the next nominee <laughs> for Education Secretary. <laughs> I mean, he's already he's already said yes to down. lead a presidential right. task force on higher education. Um, he turned supposedly he turned it down. Right, yeah, exactly. so yeah. I hope not. Come back to him. <laughs> it's possible. It is possible. This is uh, if you're not if you're not familiar, this is the president of Liberty University, uh, evangelical Christian, uh, yeah, school in Lynchburg, Virginia. Yeah, and the the son of the you know the leader of the Moral Majority exactly back in the eighties. Um, and that would be some red meat to uh, Christian uh-huh. conservative uh-huh. voters. Yep. Yeah, that'd be interesting. So does Falwell get confirmed? We're going down the hypothetical path pretty far here, but I mean, he should understand he is, education. I think a he's better. he yeah. should, um, and I think he's probably better in a, in a committee hearing. I think yeah. he's got to he's got to be better than she was in a committee yeah. hearing. Yeah, I would say he probably easily gets confirmed. Oh dear. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I don't want to. <laughs> 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 I'm reconsidering whether I should be rooting against Betsy DeVos. I don't know. Maybe I should be rooting for her. I might prefer her to Jerry Falwell, but oh well. Okay, I have a couple more things. Okay, we talked about we've talked about the Supreme Court. We talked about DeVos. Um, any other confirmations you have your eye on moving forward here? Uh, not at this point. I don't the, think any the, others are threatened. Yeah, really. the, yeah, the other no. ones that, no, 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 that seem not. like they might have been threatened have gone through. So yeah, um, you know, there was obviously there's questions about all sorts of people from Tillerson to Rick Perry to all of them, but they've uh, you know for the most part everything looks yeah. like it's going to sail right along. So yeah. I don't. I don't foresee too many other than DeVos. I don't see too many other um, potential problems. Yeah. I mean, Tillerson, you know, his confirmation was by far the closest of any secretary of state Mm -hmm. um, in modern history. And so that that was, you know, that's that's too bad. Right. Because you like the idea that the sort of, you know, 
foreign policy is bipartisan and politics stops at the water's edge. And, right. and we've increasingly moved away from that. And so such a contentious vote over the Secretary of State nominee um, is a further, I think, moving away from that. So that's that's unfortunate. But but he got confirmed. And, you know, once you're in, you're in. So it doesn't make too much difference, I guess, in that sense. If I think about not issues but national uh, national relationships or uh, inter- inter- interstate relationships between um, the United States and other countries, there are a few countries that – there's a fairly stark partisan divide. Mm-hmm. Israel is a prime example of this. Mm-hmm. Um, Israel sees its interests better fit under Republican presidents and Republican senates than under um, Democratic ones. Mm-hmm. That said, there are not too many countries like that. Mm-hmm. Politics does stop at the water's edge for lots of our relationships with other countries abroad. <laughs> traditionally. But, traditionally, but that has started to change a little bit. Um, and I think we can perhaps see an emerging partisan divide on issues like Russia mm-hmm. or even... Australia? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, you laugh. No, but. we had uh, um, <laughs> President Trump had a fairly bad conversation with uh, uh, with the Australian um, Prime yeah. Minister, which um, ended about 35 minutes early. Apparently, yeah, it was supposed to be an hour long call and lasted for 25 minutes. And during which, at one point, apparently, he said that um, that he had talked to three other, three other countries today that day, and it was this was the worst of them. Um, that wasn't the troubling thing. I mean, that, that is troubling. Okay, I mean, yeah. Australia is a fairly staunch ally. Right. Now we're sort of drifting into foreign policy discussions here, but okay. what what troubles me more is the explanation the White House gave for this because the Australians actually leaked this. The Australians said this is what happened when the when the Prime Minister talked to President sure. Trump. Um, but uh, what, the way the White House explained it was was that well, it was late in the day and the president was fatigued, <laughs> which is actually plausible. It's very um, plausible, but also very troubling if we have a president who's. Uh, his diplomatic relationships are sub, you know, is are subject to his, yeah, his 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 health levels and his fatigue and his persona. He's going to be the healthiest president ever, um, according that came to his, out doctor. his doctor's statement. Yeah. So, just want to remind you of that, Chris. Yeah, thank you. I, I think I mean, <laughs> one of the things. I mean, and obviously this isn't my area of expertise, but you know, one of the things that's fascinating about this is just the amount of time that Trump has spent antagonizing peaceful uh, allies of the United right. States. I mean, you know, we have Mexico, for example, which has for a long time been a peaceful right. ally on our southern mm-hmm. border. Mm-hmm. Um, which have... he sort of, according to according to the White House, he, um, what, what was the term they used? It wasn't tongue-in-cheek. It was playfully. He playfully suggested playfully. invading Mexico. Right. Um, that if the Mexicans couldn't deal with, with uh uh, drug-based conflict mm-hmm. in their borders, then the U.S. military would would, would come in, would That's step right. in to handle it. Yeah. I don't know how you make that playful. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think I think it was playful in the sense that we should, um, you know, that he sort of playfully <laughs> swore at the prayer breakfast. That so. was playful. He's so playful. <laughs> it's I mean, you know, like the thing is, like Mexicans and Canadians don't enjoy those kind of playful comments from people like you or me who have no <laughs> ability to carry them out. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's there's something difficult about living. Next to the behemoth, right? I mean, like, sure. there's a, you know, when I teach um, Mexico yeah. in my comparative politics class, I always bring in this quote, which is attributed to a number of people, but most likely Porfirio Diaz, um, who said, um, Pobre Mexico, you know, um, poor Mexico is so far from God, so close to the United States, right? <laughs> um, and, and this is really difficult for them, right? And the Canadians, too, and they always hate it when you talk about annexing Canada and so forth, right? Um, but they really don't, I mean, this is really becomes uneasy when you're, it's, you're getting this kind of joking. Um, from the, you know the guy who actually controls the military, right? So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I don't know how that's really playful, but yeah. <laughs> it's like I think you should avoid playful in dealing with you know <laughs> dealing with invasions and yeah. mobilizing the military. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so we, um, we've we've had an uh, interesting set of relations with various countries since uh, the Trump administration has begun. Um, we've apparently had. And, oh, by the way, the the public reaction and all these things are very short lived, so we should track mm-hmm. this over time. But right. the public relation to uh, from, from Australians was very stark. So uh, in 2015, the question was, um, how many of you uh, how do you do you view America as a favorable? Uh, yeah. you, you have a favorable opinion of America, and it was like an 84 percent for Australians. The Australians really like Americans, and we really like yeah. Australians too. To put it that they have way, great accents. Uh, <laughs> Why they, wouldn't we like? They them? do, and they are fun to hear. And uh, as of last week, that number from 84 had dropped from 84 to 16. Um, Ow. So, but, I mean, it'll, it'll pop back up. I mean, this is this is yeah. absolutely short-term effects. Another movie will get released. They'll feel better about us soon. <laughs> Another movie will get released. They'll feel better about us soon, right? Another movie? Oh, just you know, American movies. I mean, they go oh, around the world. Soft power. Oh, thank you, Soft Power. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I thought you were thinking like an Australian movie or something. But, we may know, have like to, a yeah. Mel Gibson movie or something. A friendly movie about us working with Australians. <laughs> 
Maybe Hollywood should think about this. <laughs> Be more useful. Crocodile than Dundee. We could bring back Crocodile oh Dundee, God. guys. Yeah. <laughs> That'll help. Um, okay, and things went... Uh, we've had sort of a schizophrenic set of relations with uh, with with Israel. Initially, the Trump administration <laughs> had a very was very warmly received uh, mm-hmm. by Benjamin Netanyahu, and after Netanyahu approved, um, was it twenty five hundred new settlements? I think so. That sounds um, right. New settlements in the West Bank, which is previously the United States has criticized. Uh, initially, Donald Trump said that's fine. Uh, and then reversed course about four or five days later and yeah. said, no, this is this is not helpful for peace. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm saying it's not helpful for peace is certainly not as strong as the condemnations that the Obama administration had engineered. Right. But it is, a, it is a switch in tone from sort of congratulating it to discouraging it. Right, right. And is in more, more in keeping with previous American presidents. So mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know if Israel knows what to think of the, Obama, of the, of the Trump administration right now. Yeah, well, then they're <laughs> in good company, right? I think a lot of people are trying to figure out uh, what this means yeah. um, for their, you know, for their future relations, and I think that's one thing. That, I mean, that is good about Rex Tillerson being confirmed. Is hopefully, you know, Tillerson and the the foreign policy team can begin to sort of make that clear, right? I mean, even if, regardless of whether you like the new, you know, the new path and you find it more right. useful or less useful than Obama's path, right? I mean, I think one of the things that's important in foreign relations is just certainty, like knowing what yes. you're dealing with. Agree. And so, and that's where a lot of countries are just like we're not certain, you know, who's making the calls. Who's got the ear of the president? Who do we? Who can we really trust when they come and talk to us? I mean, is this Steve Bannon? Is it Rex Tillerson? Is it Jared it, Kushner? Um, is it? Is it Jared Kushner? Is it Reince Priebus? Right? right? Or is it, yeah, probably not Reince Priebus, but is it? Could it be? You know, like I mean, so yeah, that's that's. I think that needs to be clarified. Hopefully, whatever we're doing, that sort of things will become a little clearer over the course of the next you know few weeks and months. Um, on that point, <laughs> um. This, to be fair, this happened also for the Obama administration. It happened for mm-hmm. the Bush administration as well. Mm-hmm. In the early days of a presidency, other countries are trying to figure out what is the chain of power, what is the system of influence, right. who right. has the presidency, or just like Andy said. This mm-hmm. isn't new for the Trump administration. Um, it's, sim- it's simply more chaotic because we're not sure to what extent Trump likes or trusts his various appointees. Right. Um, and right. a lot of this may, appears to be in his own mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then he himself is just a less restrained... Uh, person in terms of what he says, I mean, like you know, he he doesn't For example, you know, self-censor he, as much as he, he Obama. He indicated Bush. willingness to, to engage in military conflict with China over the South China Sea, right? Um, right which traditionally which is more we don't aggressive do. than has previously been used. Um, Nicely phrased. Yeah, let's. Um, but what I'm looking for, the, I'm looking for silver linings here, and one of them is uh, it's very clear that the Trump administration tends to have a warmer relationship with Russia than. Uh, the Obama administration had certainly, mm-hmm. and we, we laugh at this. Okay, um, you know the, the the memes are in. There's right. you know Vladimir Putin with Donald Trump with a Donald Trump puppet on his arm. Mm-hmm. You know th- those sorts of things. And I, at the very least, need to say that whatever Trump's strategy is, whatever his intentions are, I don't think that Vladimir Putin has blackmail material on him. If he does, that's that's the coup of the century in terms of uh, foreign relations, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he cl- uh, Donald Trump clearly admires Vladimir Putin in certain kinds mm-hmm. of ways. And let's yeah. say that that comes to fruition. Let's say that he actually cultivates a warmer relationship with, with, with Russia, for good or for ill. Right. Does that allow us to have more influence and impact on places like Iran and against ISIS and on Turkey and elsewhere? Uh, isn't that kind of a drive a wedge between mm-hmm. uh, one of our, adversar- our adversaries and one of their principal supporters? Possibly. I, I think the concern there is then whose way are we going to do this, right? I mean, like, because one of the reasons there's been a wedge between us and the Russians is that, um, you know, whatever criticisms you might levy against Obama and foreign policy, and I have many, um, I think Obama did at least take seriously the idea of human rights and the idea that True. we should um, respect sort of, you know, the dignity of the human person in war and so forth, right? Um, which is not something that seems to be, you know, behind what Vladimir Putin thinks, right? And so, so I mean, I think if we do get closer, what I would expect to be emerge are sort of these, I don't know, for lack of a better term, a hyper-realist kind of solution where you just sort of like crush the opposition. Right. Uh, it's all about sort of the raw, use of raw power um, to deal with it. And so, yeah, we could be very effective if we work there. But, I mean, I'm concerned what that leads us into. I mean, are we going to, you know, how far do we go? Do we commit war crimes? I mean, mm-hmm. Trump has sometimes hinted that, you know, maybe – 
things that we would consider well, we work on torture okay. more, for example. Yeah, so so I mean, I could see them coming together there, and I could see that being useful in, in some ways in terms of accomplishing sort of raw power goals. I think in terms of our, our sort of international moral stature, it could be quite damaging. Yeah. Um, and and that's that's I guess what I'm I'm concerned about. I think Trump does admire Putin um, a lot. I think you're right, and I think one of the reasons he admires him a lot is that he's a very strong leader, and I think he's he's not wrong about that. I mean, like the question is, you know, is it how so what's the balance between sort of being a strong leader and then you know violating people's rights and um, sure. meanwhile just or being, sort of or just being undemocratic right right and being under, undemocratic and so you know Putin is a strong leader but there's a cost to the way he does strong leadership um, and it's a cost that I, I I think most Americans probably would not want to accept yeah um, so that's that's really interesting to to watch Mitch. Uh, <clears throat> this is obviously not my area of expertise. So, uh, one of the things I'll be watching then that I think will be interesting to see if we start to cultivate a, a warmer relationship with Russia, quote unquote, um, I think it'll be interesting to see what that means for us in terms of uh, countries like the Ukraine. Does mm. this mean that we right. suddenly start taking a softer approach to Russia's seeming mm-hmm. you know, desires mm-hmm. to, you know, be expansionist and you know just annex other con- you know parts of other countries and mm-hmm. you know flex their military muscle on their weaker neighbors and do we you know as the United States traditionally sure. we have been sort of a counterbalance you know a counterbalance to that to say no you know you can't mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. take other countries' land um, or basically conquer them um, without some kind of consequences and if we're going to have uh, a warmer relationship mm-hmm. with Russia it seems like Russia would probably not be very warm to us if we suddenly started telling them no you can't go take you know this section yeah. of Ukraine you can't go take Take Crimea. Right. You can't right. take um, these other places um, mm-hmm. because it's simply wrong for you to conquer them. And it looks an awful lot like you know the Soviet bloc trying to expand itself. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so so I guess this kind of dovetails to Andy's mm-hmm. point about you know at, at what cost. But it would right. be um, interesting to see, and especially to see what that does to our allies in Europe. I mean, as mm-hmm. Europe sees an encroaching Russia, you know, closer and closer mm-hmm. to their own borders, um, is the United States actually mm-hmm. still? On the side of the of these of these countries that we've traditionally been allies with, yeah, and and that's where I mean Trump's sort of whole perspective on foreign policy. I mean, it maybe fits with this, right? I mean, because Trump has been very it's America first. We need to protect mm-hmm. our own borders. Why do we care about policing everywhere else? Why do we care about you know putting military over there? And so, I mean, from that perspective, maybe we don't care if Russia takes part of Ukraine, right? Maybe we don't care if they come up with a solution in you know in Syria that's more brutal than. Uh, we traditionally endorse, right? Because it works and it gets us out of trouble. And you know, it, 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 there are some there are some potential power gains. The danger is again, sort of like the next time something emerges, right? Do we have the moral stature um, to to lead in the community of nations, right? right? And I think that's the you know that's the concern. But it all it, it does I think somewhat depend on how you think about foreign policy and the way that Trump sees foreign policy. I mean, this actually does make a degree of sense. It's just I'm kind of concerned about it because I think there's there's downsides to that particular way of seeing foreign policy. And, and I think part of that also gets to, I mean, this is just um, me being sort of a, a moralist here, but mm-hmm. um, but I think part of it also points to, and this is sort of the disconnect I see in my, amongst sort of my evangelical like Christian friends, mm-hmm. is that, you know, these concerns rank very, very low. It's basically mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, oh, you know, we may slaughter or unleash, you know, armies that may commit all sorts of atrocities like um, rape or killing mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or torture or whatever else, and we just don't really care about that. I mean, that's not high, you know, these these sort of innocent lives mm-hmm. that might be swept mm-hmm. away or destroyed or um, undermined really don't count for much. And that sort of attitude um, was really at odds with sort of the basic ethics that we, you know, mm-hmm. that evangelical Christians should probably espouse. Um, but it's just interesting to see that those concerns are very much not on the table for most people. Right, and I mean, another way to put that, and I think this, this is actually something you said in a conversation we had last week, Mitch, is, you know, I mean, like, how are you pro-life, right? If you are, you know, just pro-life, I think, should include um, the rights of the unborn, right? And it should include um, respecting the dignity of the human person even before birth. But it should also include respecting the dignity of the human person and the value of life in other countries and other places, right? And if we're going to be complicit with dictators in, you know, slaughter of people, I mean, um, in what sense are we still pro-life, right? And I think so. I think this is a you know this is a criticism to me that I think works for both sides of the aisle, right? Because when I look mm-hmm. at at the Democratic side, I say you're you're way you know you're way too comfortable with sort of um, unrestricted abortion in many instances um, in ways that are disconcerting. You're way too comfortable sometimes with laws that you know potentially um, lead to the killing of the elderly, right? I mean, like, or at least facilitating their self-killing, right? Um, and that those kind of you know 
moral boundaries make me nervous, right? But on the other hand, on the Republican side, sometimes we're too cons- we're too comfortable with the um, you know the sort of foreign policies that result in the same kind of things just mm-hmm. elsewhere, right? Not um, in our immediate sort of vicinity, and and so I think you know both sides have to ask themselves hard questions of you know like in what sense are we really um, respecting people? Are we just respecting some people and not other people? Um, that's a concern. Yeah. Well, um, I think it's going to end our foreign policy corner for today. Uh, well, I do have a couple of things. Well, actually, no, no, wait, wait. I was no, say, are we going to talk about the executive yeah, order here? Yeah, talk about that too. Um, oh. Okay. <laughs> wait, wait. Did something come out on immigration? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, that that's that's domestic enemy. So okay. So okay. oh my goodness. All right. Do you guys have three more hours to be here? <laughs> All right, I started thinking how we could wrap. We this should, up. you know, we should start wrapping it up for the sake of our. We listeners. should do part two next week, maybe. Um, but uh, we. Um, the, the most controversial policy of the Trump administration in the first two weeks has been a, a, a ban on immigration. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of misinformation about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is this ban actually doing? So, as best as I can understand, yep. from I'll walk, I'll, walk here, <laughs> looking, I'll, I'll walk down this road with you, Mitch. Go yeah, ahead. that's right. So, <laughs> so, so as far as uh, looking at it, so um, basically, what what this does on the one hand is it suspends. Uh, immigration um, from seven countries. So there's yes. seven uh, Middle Eastern countries from which basically any kind of um, immigration. And it was unclear, and, and I do want to emphasize that this seems to be a lack of clarity on the part of the Trump administration. This was not just uh, unclarity in terms of application and things like right. that. It was unclear exactly who all this included. It seemed right. at first to include everyone, and that included people who had green cards, people who right. were refugees, people who mm-hmm. had family, you know, all anyone sorts. Anyone who wasn't a citizen. Anyone who wasn't a citizen was, was included in this in this order. And in fact, that was even the answer that was given by some of the people in Trump's cabinet right. um, when they were asked about mm-hmm. this. And so mm-hmm. You know, all the sort of just just to sort of clarify, there's been a lot of walking back by the Trump administration right. to say, say, no, we didn't intend this is really disingenuous because that mm-hmm. is what their people were saying that they intended before the uproar uh, began. Mm-hmm. So 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 it banned um, any kind of travel for uh, 120 days. Is that right? Uh, 90, 90 days, 90 days. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, so 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 banned. So it ended all of that. And for some places indefinitely. So it seems that, for for example, um, Syria seems to be um, indefinitely suspended. Right. Or, um and then beyond that, it also said that we were going to have an, an in-depth review of, of our um, refugee policy. Yep. So we were going to mm-hmm. go through and sort of try to revamp that. Um, although, well, I don't know how much to do criticism and how much to <laughs> and how much to. Let's do the, Let's get the policy out first, and then we'll, we'll yeah. Do, so take at it. so we have that. Um, and let's see what else was included. Well, and then there are key components. So after yeah. a temporary 90-day ban on any immigration from the – and by the way, they softened it, walked back. People with green cards from those right. countries can now come here. Um, right. And actually anybody can come here because there's a, a, a federal judge issued an right. injunction against the executive order. So it's not being enforced right now. Right. Mm-hmm. The other big issue was once uh, the the executive – or the, the uh, Donald Trump instructed the State Department to grant preference to religious right. minorities yeah. who are seeking pro- refugee mm-hmm. status mm-hmm. Uh, cool. subsequent to uh, the, the elapsing of this 90 days. Right. right. Meaning – Functionally, um, this is a preference for Christians uh, mm-hmm. and Jews over Muslims because mm-hmm. the vast majority of people seeking refugee status in the world right now are Muslims, mm-hmm. and they're coming from Muslim majority countries. Right, because I mean, those being, are the countries he blocked. Right, were Muslim majority countries. Correct. Yeah, with limited exceptions, people are not generally being persecuted because of their religion. In the in Syria, for example, they're being persecuted because of political status mm-hmm. in relation to opposition or support from yeah. the government. And there, and there has been some religious persecution. Absolutely. By ISIS, by for, ISIS, sure, for but, example. And, and that's, yeah. these are the talking points. You know, there's right. the Yazidis, it's right. the Christians in Iraq. Right. And absolutely, right. the um, that's the group that the intent of this is to favor. Mm-hmm. But it also, it, it probably leaves out more people than it favors. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Right. So... Essentially, in looking at this, I mean, there, you know, sort of, and, and I think I think your way of putting it is the is the right way to say it. There's sort of been a lot of talk of basically like a Muslim ban and things like right. that, and that is a bit of an exaggeration. It's mm-hmm. not, even though the word ban has been used by right. Giuliani, for example. Right, or, right, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and th- and this is why you know the the sort of the administrations talk about this sort of maybe betraying more than they really wanted to betray, mm-hmm. or maybe they do want to betray. I mean, you know, maybe they're not as you know as as we would say, you know. 
if we if we believe that all these regimes are rational, they are very much intending for this to be right. out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, one of the things that uh, was pointed out is you know some 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 of the defenses of this order have been saying, well, look, you know the reason these seven countries were singled out is because they're the most unstable. They're the mm-hmm. places where mm-hmm. you're most likely to get radicalized people, and that much is true because they're the most mm-hmm. war torn. But it's also the case that. Because they're the most war-torn, those are the places where the situation is the most desperate for refugees. Right. Right. These are the people who need right. the help the most and who are right. whose lives are most under threat. And so there's sort of a, a paradox here where mm-hmm. if you're saying, you know, if your defense of it is, well, these are the most unstable countries, well, that's true. But that also mm-hmm. means that they're the ones who need the help the most. So that's where right. the most innocent lives are are, uh, are vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, and I think – I mean, the other thing that just sort of trolls me about this whole thing is it, it, it operates under what I think is somewhat of a false premise, right, which is that – that we have a sort of systematic problem in the way we've been admitting refugees in particular, mm-hmm. uh, which is just simply, to me, misleading. Right? I mean, again, I have a lot of criticisms of Obama's foreign policy. I think in general he was not a very strong president in terms of his foreign policy. I think he did not leave us um, in a terribly great position, right? So I have, I have a lot of like, sort of bad things I could say about him, but this is not really one of them. I mean, what's interesting to me is like when I look at the way he's handled refugees, I don't really look and say, you know, this is somebody who is – um, you know, deeply problematic in the way he handled it. In fact, if anything, I would almost go to the other side and say, you know, he was actually all, also not all that friendly toward admitting that many refugees. Right. Right. If he erred on one side or the other, it was on the side of caution. I mean, we have a very arduous process to get in this right. country as a refugee. I mean, it takes, you know, usually at least 18 months, if not more, um, to get through all the, the hoops, right? And the reason the president did that is precisely because he had the same kind of concerns that Donald Trump has, um, which sounds funny to say that Obama and Trump agree, but they did, right? <laughs> I mean, like, that we shouldn't be just letting people in. And here I actually think, I mean, even though I would like to see us actually admit more refugees, because I think we could, and I think we could do that well, um, I think, you know, that the president had a good point, which is that we don't want, nobody wants, you know, to be admitting ISIS types into this country. That's not good right. for us. It's not good for the refugees who are trying to get away from um, this kind of oppression, right. right? And so we need to do a good job vetting for everyone and I think in general the Obama administration really did um, and so that's what that's what troubles me about all this is it, it makes this false assumption that we have a problem that the people are just pouring in over the borders and um, it's unrestricted and we're getting all sorts of crazy types in this country and it's just not accurate um, the instances we've had of this um, in recent years of you know domestic terrorism and they've been limited but the, the few that we've had um, really wouldn't be solved by the the kind of you know right. ban that Trump is putting right. in so Anyway, all that to say, like, I just think that um, there's a sort of false premise that underlines this whole order. There's one headline, I think, that kind of captured in some ways. It was basically malevolence tempered by incompetence um, is basically what <laughs> wow. you know, how, how to understand this order. Ouch. So, you know, there's basically malevolence and, you know, basically trying to keep out innocent people who mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. Um, truly suffering and right. whose lives right. are in danger and who, you know, pose no threat. And we know right. they pose no threat because of how already right. extreme the vetting is. <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah. And and so that's malevolent. And on the other hand, because of the way it was implemented, you see mm-hmm. some incompetence on the part of the administration and they're you know, yeah. basically flat-footed handling of, of all this. Oh, I mean, like the, the green card thing is just huge, right? I mean, like, and again, thankfully that's been rectified and the administration, to its credit, did finally, you know, under pressure, issue sort of the mea culpa and realize that this was wrong. And But, I mean, that's illegal, right? I mean, like right. we have a, exactly. a legal agreement with people. They are, you know, they are residents of Perfect this country even though they're not citizens, right? And you can't just decide arbitrarily that all is for naught and you, just because you happen to be a green card person who came from Syria or whoever else, right, right. that you are now, you know, you don't have a green card. And that's just ridiculous. So. Uh, and thankfully, they admitted that. But it's what's troubling is that they didn't. You know, it took them several days to admit that and to realize, like, oh, we can't do that. That's illegal. <laughs> right. so that's troubling. So yeah, you know, well, stay, stay, incompetence for sure. Stay tuned on this. Um, is possible that the administration? There's a court injunction against this now. The Justice right. Department is appealing right. that court injunction to implement uh, the to in- implement this the, this presidential executive order. This could go to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and yeah. we still have a four-four Supreme Court. I, you know, I would, I would not be surprised to see this not be actually a tough issue for the yeah, Supreme Court, and the other way. I mean, the Supreme Court, even though it, it can be very divided on some issues, um, this is the kind where I mean, the the only justice I could see that I would be confident, well, I, I wouldn't even be confident, but that I would wouldn't be surprised to see side with the administration would be Alito. Uh, the other seven, I would all look at and say, I would think they would have all have some pretty deep reservations. Mm-hmm. This is a yeah. court that whatever their disagreements are, they are they are on the side of civil liberties, and I think they're right. going to be very concerned about... And they, due process. Uh, and due process. Yeah. I mean, Alito is the most pro-executive power of that crew. Um, the other seven, I would actually not be surprised to see 7-1 or 8-0. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, actually. And, and, and an ADO decision on an issue like this would be calamitous to the Trump administration. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And actually, yeah. I think if, if Neil Gorsuch uh, was on the court, it would probably be 9-0. Yeah. Um, because he is, he is someone who actually, um, in terms of his judicial philosophy, yeah. in terms of following constitutional legal action, he very much uh, errs on the side of mm-hmm. um, the uh, defendants, basically, yeah. and people who, agree. Um, who who are owed things by the government. And so yeah. he does not usually side with, um, with, with the government, with the, mm-hmm. you know, with law enforcement and the people yeah. who are trying to enforce yeah. Uh, things against civil liberties. Yeah, and that's it's, inter- it's interesting you bring that up, Mitch, because I mean, Democrats have said, "Oh, we're not sure Gorsuch will stand up." And like, when you look at his record, right. I actually don't have any concerns there. I think he's going to yeah. get in there and he's going to be an independent judge, and I think he's going to, you know, be willing to stand up and tell the Trump administration no yeah. if they if they yeah. cross lines. And you know, given early indications, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more line crossing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, we have so much more we can talk about, guys. We've got. Um, Steve Bannon is on the National Security Council. Um, yeah. Is that a problem? <laughs> you know, honestly, okay, in all seriousness, no. Let me explain. I mean, and, and I know that uh, right. anybody, if you're, if you're an opponent of the Trump administration or you're, or you're more liberally minded, you're probably like, what? But really, it's not. Um, people who were in Steve Bannon's position, mm-hmm. which is to say uh, White House senior uh, chief uh, or senior advisor, right. senior advisor yeah. to the president, um, regularly attend National Security Council meetings. Mm-hmm. They're not listed as principals. Right. And the Principles Committee was not in the original uh, order creating the National Security Council. So, no, Steve Bannon does not need Senate confirmation either. Um, but what, it is, what this means is it's codifying something that was already happening. Mm-hmm. But I think it tells us more about the Trump administration itself because the chief, the White House chief of staff, Reince Priebus, is already on the list to be part of the Principles Committee for the National Security Council. Mm-hmm. This is putting Steve Bannon in the same position as Ryan's Priebus, mm-hmm. right. which he previously wasn't. So, in a, in mm-hmm. a, for example, for the, the the Obama administration, David Axelrod would come to these meetings, even though he wasn't listed. Um, yeah. And because, you know, he could be there by invitation. Right. So mm-hmm. what this is doing is basically, it's one way of Bannon sort of trying to hold the same status as Ryan's Priebus in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And that's what I take away from this mm-hmm. more than anything yeah. else. Well, and the other thing is the the way they've handled the Joint Chiefs is, I think, probably the more that's been disturbing yeah. thing. That you normally they are sort of obvious participants, and now it's more like, well, when we need you, we'll right. call you, but right. you don't always plan to be there. So yeah, yeah, very strange, um, man. Okay, so here, so we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to tie this off because we yeah, got, we we got places to get to. But next time we need to talk about the role of the media. Um, yeah. And how how the media reports on a president like Donald Trump? Mm. Maybe we can get uh, Scott Winter to come back and talk to us a little <laughs> bit about that, and, and talk about the the different ways this president has engaged the media than than presidents in the past. Yeah. So um, we got lots to do, guys. We've got classes to teach. Um, uh, welcome back, and it's, uh, thank you for Good listening to, to us uh, for the first time in 2017. On behalf of my colleagues, this is Chris Moore from Bethel University saying you've been listening to Election Shock Therapy. Thank you so much for that. And go Royals.